Uh, my name is Barry Fike. Uh, I teach in the communication department right up the hill. So every time I walk out of that building, all I see is the Pacific Ocean. Just absolutely gorgeous. And I was telling a couple of you, said, what, I, every day I look out and I see it, I go, what in the world am I doing working here? Uh, it's just I'm so lucky uh, to be here and count my blessings every day and have good students like the RA that's sitting up here that had to clean all the bathrooms in his dorm for all of you who were coming in to stay in the place where he was at, which he was happy to do, I can Very tell happy. you. Um, what we're going to be looking at today is a topic that, to be very honest, it, it's, uh, I don't know why, but it's hard to talk about sometimes, for me at least. And the reason why is because of a, a battle within me that goes on every time I bring this subject up, and I, I think I know what's going on, but it's not pleasant. So it's a hard thing to talk about, just because of the nature of, of what I'm gonna be discussing. And uh, as we get into it, you, I think you'll understand that a little bit. And when that happens, I know that I'm on the right track. Um, if things are really easy, I wonder, but if things are really hard, I think I'm, I'm doing something worthwhile. Uh, I also preach at the Woodland Hills Church of Christ, which is about 20 minutes from here. And uh, so my wife is back here. Uh, before you leave, uh, I've got a couple of things uh, I'm gonna offer you. One is the notes for what I'm gonna be talking about. I've typed up 12 pages of notes for you, so if you can't keep up with what I'm doing, I'm gonna give everything to you. So and then you can go and correct it and send it back to me, and then I'll make whatever corrections I need to make. Um, you can, uh, if you have any questions, of course, please raise your hand during this, or I just keep going. Ask Connor. Uh, if I get started on something, I don't stop until I, I get the idea finished. So if you have any questions, just raise your hand, and I'll stop wherever I'm at. Otherwise, I'm just gonna keep going. Also, a uh, little reminder, cell phones, silence them if you can. That's really annoying to hear uh, Bungle in the Jungle go on, you know, right in the middle of the lecture. So if you can, silence those a little bit, and then we're in good shape. I'd like to start off with a word of prayer before we get into this, and then we'll get started with uh, the talk. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful day. I want to ask your blessing to be upon all those who are here, and ask your spirit to be given free reign to move among us and in us, to enlighten our minds, our hearts, to open our ears so that we can hear the things that you want us to hear, the things that you want us uh, to understand about who you are and the ways that you have in this world and the things that work against you. In all things, Father, we ask for your blessing to fall upon us and for uh, your spirit to guide and to help me as I communicate this material to uh, these individuals. And in all these things, we ask for your blessing to be with us. And in your son's name, we pray this. Amen. Amen. How many in here have seen the movie The Ten Commandments? Just about everybody, okay. I saw that when I was uh, seven years old. And that was when they had the intermission. Remember that? In the theaters, when they had the intermission. And you could go out, and of course, everybody was smoking in the bathrooms that day and time. And uh, it was just... It, of course, the thing that blew my mind was the parting of the Red Sea. I just thought that's the greatest thing ever. I didn't pay much attention to a lot of the rest of it because that was just cool and that was the one thing I really thought was cool, plus the throwing down the rod and it becoming a snake and all the miracles and all that. But there are some problems in that movie, <laughs> some big problems in that movie. It's not theologically correct, let's just put it that way, in a lot of ways. And I didn't care if I was seven years old, and I really don't care now. I think it's a great step to get people going in the right direction. 
But when it gets to that section where it talks about Aaron, and there's uh, a prince, you remember, from Egypt that's there, and the prince uh, kind of talks him into making a golden calf, and then he's the one that sets up the people getting all the gold together and all that, which is not what the text says. Uh, then Moses takes the Ten Commandments and throws them at the golden calf. It busts the earth wide open, and the calf falls in it, and all the people that worship it and all that. Of course, that is inaccurate. That's not what the Bible says happened. And so all these things that go on are really interesting, and they're cool for cinematography, but they're not according to the biblical text. How do we know what happened? Well, we're required by virtue of basically who we are to know everything we can about God. And that's what the Bible's given to us for, is to find out everything we can know about who he is, what he is, uh, what he wants us to know about him. And there's only one way we can know this, and it's not by faith. It's by study. People seem to undermine or un don't understand the concept of how important biblical study really is. And I'm not talking about just reading it. I mean really studying it. I'm so passionate about this that I started on something about 20 years ago and ended up being this right here. And I do a seminar now uh, for congregations, and I'm one of probably the only people that don't ask to be paid to do it. Just pay for my travel to get there and back, and I'm okay. Uh, but I do a seminar because it's about four hours, two hours on Saturday morning. This goes into why the necessity of it, and two hours later on that says, how do you do it? How can you look up Greek? How can you look up Hebrew? How can you look up archaeological digs? How can you do all this stuff? And it really is a lot easier than people understand. You really don't have to spend you know, uh, hours and hours and hours of time in a classroom to understand all this stuff. For the novice uh, that's just trying to get into it and doesn't want to you know, go to a deep theological seminary understanding and reading of material that you may not be interested in anyway, I can show you how to do that. That's really easy. So what I've brought, if you're interested in it, at the end of this, is my wife is back here in this corner, and she's got 10 of these back there. If you want one of these, go ahead and take it and look at it, and if you're interested, call me back. If not, you can copy it and give it to whoever you want to. I don't care. It's just basically on how to do Bible study and how to be more intensive in this, because I think it's that important. And that's what I've been trying to do with the text we're going to be looking at here. Have you ever had a time when you're reading the Bible... Hey, Byron. That's my brother right there, my little brother. Uh, well, you know what I mean, in years. Um, have you ever read the Bible and been going through it, and all of a sudden you saw something you'd never seen before? Yep. That happened to anybody else? Uh, I call those Eurekas, and Eureka means I found it. And when I was reading this text about 30 years ago, something hit me. I was listening to a lecture, and the guy was talking about this, and all of a sudden something hit me. And I want to read the text first, and then this is what we're going to base this off of. This is from Exodus 32. This begins with verse 21. Now I'm going to be reading out of the American Standard, not because it's the best translation, but it's the one I started 30 years ago, and I've just been too lazy to transfer all the notes into another version. So I'm just going to read out of this one. Moses has come down off the mountain. He's thrown the, broken the Ten Commandments. He walks up to Aaron. Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do unto you that you brought thus a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax not or wax hot. Thou knowest the people, they are set on evil. 
They said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it to the fire, and out came this calf. Now, I've always thought, I know a third grader that could come up with a better excuse than that. <laughs> and yet, the next thing that God does to him is he makes him high priest. Does that seem a little odd to you? <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about. What's going on here? What's happening here? Why does that work? Because if he's lying, we know what should happen. But if he's not lying and he's telling the truth, then what's he talking about? So, here's where we're going to start. For 400 years, the Israelites have been in Egyptian bondage. Now, that's 10 generations. That's longer than the United States has been in existence. Now, imagine if you've been in a situation and your relatives have been in a situation for 10 generations, and the only thing that surrounds you is Egyptian culture. Now, they had no uh, <coughs> written record of anything. The Torah is not written to the wilderness wandering, so that hasn't happened yet. All they have is oral stimulation and oral stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's it. There's really nothing that's written. That's all they have to go on. And God hadn't been talking to them. There's no miracles in Egypt. There's nothing going on during that 400 years. And so, for that 400 years, what did they see as far as a God? And what they see is Egypt and the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian worship. And we don't know how far this permeates into their soul until we get a little bit further in the story, but it does fall very, very close to them because that's what surrounds them. They don't have anything else. They're God they can't touch, they can't see, they don't have a written record, they don't have temples, they don't have anything, but Egypt has all of that. And it constantly surrounds them. So, Moses gets kicked out of Egypt. He's a sheep herder for 40 years, at a ripe old age of 80. He gets called by God to go and to, uh, back to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh, let my children go. And the first sign is what? What does he do? The first sign before Pharaoh. Anybody remember? Staff. It's the staff, yeah. correct? Mm -hmm. All right. So when he goes before Pharaoh, he has this staff. Now watch the text closely. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, who also did the same thing by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Does that seem a little odd to you? <laughs> I heard somebody some years ago tell me that the way that the Egyptian princes did it was that they had, had freeze-dried snakes and that when they threw them down, it, it shook them and woke them up. <laughs> and my only question was, where in ancient Egypt are you going to find a deep freezer? Are you kidding me? Come on, that doesn't even seem feasible. But that's the only thing they could come up with. Think about this. Who are these guys? Wise men, sorcerers, magicians of Egypt. Who are these people? And according to rabbinic commentaries, here's what they say. These were men wise and adjourning and gathering demons. These were the leaders and the elders in Egypt. The wise men were experts in the art of demons. 
The sorcerers were masters of magic. These experts were held in high esteem by the Egyptians, and they were referred to as wise men. Now, this is really interesting, because all of a sudden we have a link in rabbinic commentaries of these guys to demonology. Now, let's look at these words themselves. The English word sorcerer comes from this Hebrew word, which means witchcraft or sorcery. That's what it's translated. And it means to practice witchcraft or sorcery or to use witchcraft. The Pharaoh of Exodus basically has these guys, these sorcerers, as part of his itinerary. They're the guys that he surrounds himself with. These are the ones that are his advisors. These people are outlawed in law later on. The Torah wants nothing to do with these types of individuals. Why? Because of the association. It's not with God. Found in the feminine form. It's found in the masculine form throughout the Bible. But for the penalty for this in Israelite culture is death. Why? Because a house divided against itself can't stand. And you've got to go either one way or the other. And if you're going to go with witchcraft and sorcery and that type of thing, then you're going to go with demonology. If you're going to go with the other, then you're going to have to go with God. The word magician basically comes from this word. And here are a ton of scriptures, which, again, I have this in my notes. Uh, and you can look at this later on. Uh, the magicians of Egypt employed what they called secret arts. And that's what the magician is. It's a person who works with the secret arts. Now, what are the secret arts? Well, by secret arts, you're talking about diviners, magicians, astrologers, engravers, one possessed of occult knowledge. A person possessed with occult knowledge. Now think of that. Because today we would call this something about uh, black magic. And black magic basically is associated with the use of supernatural knowledge. Now it's these individuals that duplicate the first three plagues. And it doesn't say that they faked it. It says they duplicated it. Which means there's some power working within whatever they're doing that allows them to duplicate these things, especially they're throwing down their staffs and they become snakes just like uh, Aaron's did, but Moses, but Aaron, or at least the staff that Aaron threw down, swallowed up their snakes. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it happened. So, what's going on? Power encounter. I'm sorry? Power encounter. Power encounter. Power encounter, yeah. What we're looking at, though, is what's the power? Whose power is it? Power of darkness versus the power of light. That's exactly what's going on. Um, this idea found, and here's the three, uh, uh, the scriptures for the first three plagues that they duplicate. And it's only with the plague of gnats that you get to something that I find really interesting. And when I was reading in Luke uh, the other day, ran across the same phrase where these guys say, uh, this is the finger of God that has done this. Look at Luke 11, verse 20. This is really interesting. It makes kind of a chill go up my spine when I read this. Uh, but listen to the implications, understanding what I've just said. This is Jesus talking, and he has cast out a demon. He says, If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. Uses the exact same phraseology that the concept was used in Egypt when they realized whose power it was that was really being acted, and that is not a dark type of magic, it is God that is really working, and that's what they were saying. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And look at the reference. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Isn't that interesting? 
So, how does all this happen? Again, we go back to the concept of what's referred to today as black magic. It's generally used to refer to magic that involves the powers of demons. And if you go back and you look at this, and I don't know what your concept of demons are, but let's just say it is a spirit that works in opposition to God. Yes, sir? It's fascinating that the magicians say this is the kingdom of God. Isn't it? But they don't say, the bad guy's got a hold of our power. <laughs> they realize that if they can't do it, it can't be by the power that resides within them. There's something higher than what they're doing and that's why they say, this is by the finger of God, and they don't say Yahweh. They say it's more like this is the finger of an Elohim, a, a God-like figure. They're not designing who especially it is, because they don't know who, which, which God this is. They're about to find out. They're going to go through ten plagues and the death, you know, uh, death and uh, disintegration of their entire culture, just about. So black magic, here's a good definition. This is from an occult encyclopedia. And I might say, how in the world did you get that? Well, I have it in my library. And I don't use it except for stuff like this. <laughs> I don't touch this thing. But here's what it says. The use of supernatural knowledge for the purposes of evil, the invocation of diabolic and infernal powers that they may become as slaves and emissaries of man's will. But notice they become sl the slaves and emissaries of the will of man. In other words, men determine if this is going to happen to them. Men are the ones that open up the doors. Just like we open up the doors to God. If a man doesn't want God to reside in him, then God won't. He can't. We're free moral agents. We make that choice. And the same thing with the other side. If it's going to reside in us, it's only because we made the choice to allow that to happen. I'll talk about that more in just a moment. This type of power can be traced from Egypt, the Persians, the Greeks, and unfortunately the Hebrews as well. In the ancient world of Egypt... Magic was their society. If you go to the cult of the dead, you find that you have all kinds of incantations and things that are going on, and the afterlife and all the things that are occurring there. Uh, magic was very, very high on and prominent in their culture. And this was something that was highly associated primarily also with religion. The Hebrew word for demons, this is interesting, is shadim. And Genesis 4.13, this is a really interesting passage, and if you haven't ever looked at this, I want you to go look at this sometime. The context is the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are getting together. Remember when Abraham had the little army and Lot gets taken and that whole scenario? Well, this is right in the middle of that scenario. So the king of, of Sodom and Gomorrah get together, and they get in the valley of Sedim. Demon Valley. Does that tell you anything about them and their culture and the type of things that were going on within their ideals. We know that they weren't good cities because God would just rain fire and brimstone down upon them and eventually torch them, but what's going on? This is what's going on, and this word describes it right there. The idea of a shed, a sedim comes from the word shed. This is demon. It's a loan word from the Assyrian for sedu, which means a protecting spirit. Can you imagine an Assyrian saying a demon is a protecting spirit? But in their culture, that's exactly what they believed. These people were so wrapped up in the dark side that, and it sounds kind of like a Star Wars metaphor, doesn't it? Uh, that they just couldn't move away from it. This was their entire society is based on this. Have you ever wondered why that when God told them to go into the land of Canaan for certain cultures, he said, wipe them all out? Men, women, children, animals, everything. This is why. 
If you knew anything about their worship, if you knew anything about the type of people that these were, these people were like Genesis 6, where every thought of their heart was only evil continually. That was it. There was nothing redeemable about any of them, not even the children. And that's about as far as I can go with that. Um, I would tell you more, but it would probably offend the conscience of some people in here, so I, I can't describe the practices of religion, but I can tell you from an archaeologist that was trying to describe this to me, he said, take modern-day pornography, go backward about 10 steps, and invite children and animals in it, and you got it. He said, that's their worship. This is an archaeologist that had just found Tel Kassila, which is a Philistine temple from the time of David, and he found instruments and artifacts that he said all we could do is label them because we couldn't describe how they were used. He said, it's just too bad. You can't understand these people and how utterly depraved that they really were. In Psalms 106 and Deuteronomy 23, this concept of demonology has direct correlation to human sacrifice. And Molech was the god of human sacrifice. And you keep seeing Molech pop up from time uh, over and over and over in the Old Testament. That is associated with demons and demonology. And there's three scriptures that I find really interesting in the New Testament. I want to read these to you. 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul talking about, I say that the things with the which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I would not that you should have communion with demons. By the way, do you know what the context of that is, what he's talking about? He's talking about the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 6.12 Our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers, the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. And then, Revelation 9.20 the rest of mankind who were not killed with these plagues repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. So when you get to Greek, what are we talking about? When you get to Greek and you look at the word, it's used 60 times in the New Testament. 60 times. Was it prevalent? Oh, yeah, sure is. And how is it defined here? It's defined here as a spirit or a being that's inferior to God, but it is also superior to man. That's interesting. And Luke 11, verses 21 through 23, describes that. I'm not going to go there because I don't have the time to, but when you have time, sit down and go to Luke 11 and read what Jesus says about this concept. Now, what do we understand from this? All right. What we have here is we have a spiritual entity that's called a demon that's bent on one thing, and that is taking from the creation of God the power of God that God naturally gave to it to create whatever man wanted to, to glorify God. And it abuses man, and it hurts man, and it um, insinuates the idea that whatever I'm doing is the opposite of what God would do if he were in charge. They are... one. Uh, author said they're amendable to the avenue of agents of free choice, and listen to this, and must be selected to allow adherence into a person's life. In other words, they don't get there because they force themselves in. They get there because they're invited, or there's no defense. Have you ever wondered why that when Paul talks about the, um, all the spiritual armor in Ephesians 5, what's the big deal there? 
Because, yeah, we're in a spiritual battle, folks. Every single day, every moment of the day. And what if you're not equipped for that battle? What's going to happen? You're in trouble. You're in big trouble. And what do we see in the United States, really in the world today? Is there any evidence of people that are in trouble? We can call it mental disease. We can call it whatever we want to. I think it's much, much deeper than that. I think there's a real spiritual defeat that's going on in the lives of a lot of people, and it's being correctly misdiagnosed, and it's not being solved. In Jesus' day and time, did we see people that would throw themselves in the fire or that could uh, prattle or run around naked or act crazy, just like we see today? Demon, and the concept of demonology is found 60 times in the New Testament. That's very interesting. These things are known to vex people with diseases, with really bad diseases. They can act and speak as though they're mad or crazy. And Paul said that uh, he was teaching them that the gods of the Gentiles are just fiction. They, they just don't make any sense. You just made them up. And says in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, the conception of these gods has been put into the minds of men by demons. Where does bad theology come from? Where do cults come from? Where does this concept of mental disease and all this come from? Is it just because there are inadequate chemical balances within people? Or is it because there's inadequate spiritual balance within people? Errors disseminated by demons are talked about, that Paul wrote Timothy about, seduces them from the truth. Keeps them from believing it. Else, why would they have ears and they don't hear and eyes and they don't see? Has that ever been a problem in the Bible anywhere? How about constantly? But what was going on? Well, what was going on was that they didn't turn to God. And if you don't turn to God, you've got only one other option. So what does this have to do with Mount Sinai? Right? You're sitting there going, okay, this is great. I'm, this is interesting. Okay, fine. So what? All right, so let's go to this. So let's look at the golden calf for just a second. This is a god that they were very familiar with in Egypt. This is a god that was so common that we see images of bulls all over the place. We see mummified bulls, as you can see here. Let me cut off these lights just a little bit so you can see that a little better. And if you go on Google and just type in uh, Apis bull, uh, you're going to be surprised at what shows up. I mean, it's just all over the place. All the digs show this constantly. From about 3100 B.C., we find that a bull was considered in Egyptian culture to be associated with the great leaders, even the Pharaoh himself. Why? Because they were of stout heart. They had great courage. Unless you're Ferdinand. That's another story. Uh, you have a determination to fight. You have strength beyond all reason. Or you're virile. You know, you're ready to go. Uh, these animals were such fierce fighters and known as, as such outstanding uh, uh, animals that they were considered to be something that was, um, could be worshipped and looked at. So bulls and mother cows began to be revered among all the other animals in their society. And the most sacred of all was the Apis bull. Here's another one. This is the incarnation of the god Osiris, and is identified by certain markings. You notice uh, this right here, an eagle on the back, the tail is wrapped up in knots, 
You can't see his tongue, but there's supposed to be a scarab under his tongue and something up here on his forehead. That would describe what the Apis bull is. The Egyptian belief was that a flash of lightning came down and hit this bull, and actually God marked it, uh, or the gods marked it, as the Apis bull. And it was very, very distinctive. And therefore was to be something worshipped because it was a gift from the gods of their strength to man, uh, and it was the only way the gods would communicate. And so this was one of the gods that was a designated God, but only a representation of the gods uh, uh, in their Parthenon. Now, really interesting. In archaeology, when they're doing digs and they find stuff like this, I just go crazy because this is just so interesting to me. And if it's not interesting to you, just sit back for a while and enjoy the weather. But around 1750 to 1550, this is in the city of Ashkelon. Ashkelon is in the south part of Palestine. Uh, at that time, this was Canaanite territory. It wasn't even Philistine territory. Later it would be Philistine, but it's Canaanite territory. They're digging, and they ran across this. Now, I want you to look at this. This is really pretty cool. This is a little shrine that somebody had and had a doorway here. And if you look down here at his feet, you can tell that these were a little notched in something. They believe there was a plank that came out of here. This little uh, bull figure is put on that notch and that this was somebody's uh, sanctuary. Traces, uh, when they started looking at what was on here, because something looks like it was on here, they found that the uh, trace elements showed that one time this had been pure silver on an outlay on it, and that this probably was associated with Baal, or Baal, as we know it. But notice what the figure is. It's a calf. Now, this is in Egypt. This is Canaan. And yet this idea permeated all the way from Egypt even over into this area and probably to most of the known world. Now this idea will so infiltrate the minds of the Israelis or the Hebrews, they're not Israelis yet, the Hebrews, that they will at one time, I think at Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, will put a golden calf at Dan and one at Bethel. And... This is the northern and the southern border to keep them from going to Jerusalem uh, to worship there. Therefore, you've got your own gods that are close enough. We'll just take care of it. Isn't it interesting? It's a golden calf at both places. So, what does all this mean? Well, so we talked about demonology. We talked about the golden calf. Now let's go to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is not as easy as it sounds. Uh, Mount Sinai, if you read the record, goes from Genesis, I mean, Exodus 19, Exodus 20, to Deuteronomy 5. And then you throw in 32 as well. Uh, and it's just all over the place. And it's hard to figure out what's going on. So what I did on the handout I've given to you is I've got a timeline of going through all the scriptures from 19 to 20 uh, to 32 to Deuteronomy 5. And I've done this from rabbinical commentaries that have worked on this for about 2,000 years, which I didn't have that much time to work on it, so I just take their word for it. This is pretty close. Um, but here's basically what they have. Now, I'm going to go through this really fast, okay? So you may not want to write this down. Again, I have this for you in note form. Uh, but let's just start with uh, Exodus 19. So they wander in the wilderness for three months. They come to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to God. Now, this is 19 through through 9. Gets God's instructions of how God's protected them, how they'll be his possession, you know, the kingdom of priests, the holy nation. The people answered and said, all the Lord has spoken, we're going to do. Moses reports this back to the Lord, 
And then Moses is told, now the Lord's going to appear in a thick cloud, and the people are going to listen as they talk. The people are sanctified. This is chapter 19, verse 10. That means they're set apart. They're ready when the Lord comes down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. That's the original plan. Now, boundaries are set at the bottom of Mount Sinai in verse 12. It says you can't go up any further than this. Verse 13, you have a big trumpet sound, shofar. On the third day, they're preparing for the revelation. There's sounds of thunder, lightning. All this is going on. You have the blast of the trumpet. The presence of God is felt by the people, and it scares them half to death. Verse 16 says the people shuddered in the camp. I think we probably all would have. Uh, and this refers that they're still in the camp. They're not coming to the mountain yet. So they haven't gone to the boundary. Moses tells them, don't worry about it. Verse 17, brings them toward God. And now they stand at the bottom of the mountain with Moses there with them. Because they figure out if he goes first, you know, then we're, the rest of us are gone. But at least he goes first. While they're at the bottom of the mountain, this is verse 18. They're anticipating God's arrival. God descends on the mountain in fire. Verse 18, it says the smoke ascends. Uh, the clouds get dark. Uh, the ground starts shaking. Um, like an earthquake, which we're very familiar out here with that. Verse 19, you have the sound of the blast of the trumpet again. Now we go to chapter 20. In chapter 20 and verse 15, along with uh, chapter 19, 12, and 13, it says, they saw the thunder and the flames. Now they move back again. They stand at a distance. So they stand back away from it. This just scares them to death. They all said in verse 16 of chapter 20, God should not speak directly to us lest we all die. In verse 17, Moses says, don't be scared of him. And they listen to him. He overcame their oppression that if they hear God, they're not going to die. So now they're ready to hear God. Verse 18, they still aren't going to come to the mountain. They're still standing back at a distance. Despite all Moses' reassurance, they're still not going to come back up to the mountain. They're still standing back a little bit. They're still not sure about all this. Now we go to chapter 24 and verse 1. Another direction is given to Moses. Now he has to bring, and listen to this, who he brings. Nadab, Abihu, ever heard of those guys before? And 70 of the elders to worship, but they're not allowed to go near to God. Isn't that interesting? They get close to God, Nadab and Abihu, along with 70 of the other elders. And they're specifically mentioned. Uh, verse 3 in chapter 24. After the reading of the ordinances of God, the people make a covenant. All that God has spoken, we will do. Verses 4 through 8. So the next morning, Moses gets up, builds an altar, has 12 pillars. Young men offer the burnt offerings, the peace offerings. Moses takes half the blood, spills it on the altar, then takes out something called the Book of the Covenant. Has anybody ever heard of the Book of the Covenant before? You have. Do you know what it is? Here's what it is. The Book of the Covenant is legal, moral, and cultic literature from Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. That's the best we can understand of what's going on here. The book of the covenant was material that he had already written down that obviously God has already communicated with him. Now, remember, he's sacrificing. He's reading this covenant. It's called the book of the covenant, and a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And the covenant takes place between the sprinkling of the blood, the sacrifice, the reading of the covenant, the people agreeing to everything that God has said we're going to do before the Torah is given on Mount Sinai. Understand the timeline, what we're working with here. 
In 24, 9 through 11, Moses, Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, and 70 of the elders see the God of Israel, and at the place where they see him, they eat and drink. I think I would have just passed out. Yes. Can I quickly verify what you just said? Yes. So it was given before the Torah? That means before the Ten Commandments? Yes. Okay. Before the Ten Commandments are given in form, but as we'll find out in just a moment, actually the people were given the Ten Commandments long before he brought it down. Okay. I'll show it to you. Chapter 24 and verse 12, God tells Moses to get up on the mount, receive the commandments. Joshua gets up and goes with him, and they go up there. Oh, by the way, here's an interesting one. Chapter 24 and verse 14, Moses says and tells the elders, if there's any problems, take it to Aaron and Ur. H-U-R. So, Aaron's designated as the guy to go to along with this other guy. So Moses approaches the thick cloud. He doesn't go in it. God proclaims the Ten Commandments. This is chapter 21 through 14. Chapter 24 says he's on the Mount uh, 40 days and 40 nights. And then we go back to chapter 20. Now I want you to watch this. Look at the text. Listen to what it says. After receiving the Ten Commandments, the scriptures do not mention what the elders said to Moses. We don't know what they said because they're basically explaining the commandments. What it does say is this. I have talked with you from heaven. But who's he talking to? He's not talking to Moses. He's talking to Israel. Now, if you think that's a little weird, how about this one? Deuteronomy 5, verse 22. These words, the Ten Commandments, this is verses 7 through 21, which is before verse 22. The Lord spoke unto all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick darkness with a great voice. He added no more, and he wrote them upon two tablets of stone and gave them to them. But notice they got this, then they got this. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you want more than that, go to Deuteronomy 5.23. Go to Deuteronomy 4.11-13. It says the exact same thing four times. Chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, verse 24. The Lord has shown us great glory, his greatness. We have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire, the people said. You approach and hear whatever Hashem our God will say, you tell it to us. We'll be able to hear and we shall be able to do. So we've heard it. Now, tell us more. The Holy One agrees with their words and says they did well. Verse 27, go to God and speak. Tell us what he said. And God says, I wish everybody had a heart like these people so they respect me and keep my commandments. And this is really interesting because the people are saying we want to know more. So it goes up 40 days and 40 nights. And during that 40 days, it gets more than 10 commandments. I'm guaranteeing you. That's where you get Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which he writes down the next 40 years while they're in the wilderness wanderings. And that's where you get the Torah, is the 40 days that he's on the mountain. But before the 40 days, when Moses is still with the people, isn't it interesting that Israel was already exposed to the Ten Commandments? It says so right here in Deuteronomy 5. <coughs> Read verses 7 through 21. So the Ten Commandments... And then verse 22 says, these words the Lord spoke unto all your assembly. It didn't say he just gave them to Moses. <clears throat> now, what happens from there? Well, Moses leaves them. All right? So now we get to the thing. And we got 20 minutes to do this. So we're going to try and finish this, okay? I'm going to do the best I can. The people are understanding that there's one spokesman for God. There's one person that's led them the whole way, and that's Moses, right? He's the key guy. Moses is not, I mean, Aaron is not. Aaron is the spokesman. I mean, he kind of speaks for him because Moses is a, 
what's called in Hebrew a meggam gam, which means a stutterer. Uh, Moses couldn't talk his way out of a paperback, which is why he kept saying, you know, I'm not a man well of words, no kidding. Uh, so Aaron went with him. But when Moses goes up on the mountain, something happens. Remember, they said, when they heard the Ten Commandments, whatever the Lord has said, we will do. That means they have accepted the covenant. When the book of the covenant is read, you have the sacrifices given. They say, that's fine, we're going to do it. So what change of minds? <coughs> I thought this was Israel. These are the people of God. These are the people that have you know, established their, their relationship with God. And now they've said, no, we're going to do everything you say. And then all of a sudden, Moses comes back, and what happens? Well, he sees this absolutely ridiculous <coughs> nonsense going on with some golden calf and he gets all ticked off and throws the tablets down and breaks them and, and then runs up to Aaron and says, what did you do? And Aaron says, well, um, you know how these people are. They've just been on evil. I just threw the gold in this fire and out came this calf. <laughs> and you go, oh, come on. But think about that. Here's something interesting. At the commandment of the Lord, they encamped. At the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the commandment of the Lord by Moses. One rabbi came up with a really interesting idea here, and I think it's interesting. You know, when you get two rabbis together, you get three opinions. So, because none of them agree with each other, and that's the greatest thing about rabbinic literature is they just make your mind go crazy, and you're just running all kinds of rabbits everywhere. And that's great. I, I love the idea that they don't all agree on everything. They just go everywhere. They're very free thinkers. But listen to what they're saying here. This is what this rabbi said. He said, they're saying here, we need an Elohim. That's what the Hebrew says. It doesn't say Yahweh. It says we need an Elohim that will go before us. What is Elohim? Well, Elohim can mean God. Or in this sense, this rabbi said, or it can mean man of God. That we don't necessarily need... Um, Anything other than somebody to take Moses' position because didn't they say whatever's become of him, we don't know. And that's when they go kind of crazy because they're lacking leadership. They're not lacking a God. They have a God, but they're lacking a man of God. And so he says they don't want another God. They don't want another deity. What they want is another leader that would lead them the way that Moses did. And so that's what they're looking for. We need an Elohim. We need a man of God to lead us. Now, I think there's an essence that falls over into God also. I mean, there's, there's a very fine line here. But with that request, why does Aaron do what he does? I mean, let's follow this very carefully. And I have 17 minutes, so I'm not going to be able to read all the text. But if you go to uh, Exodus 32, read the text carefully and watch what happens here. There's three actions that are taken. Number one. He tells them to break off the golden rings that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them unto me. Now notice he says, break them off. He doesn't say, get them. And ladies, you'll love this one. Uh, the rabbis believe that he uses that phrase because they had to tear the rings away from the women because they did not participate or were not very cooperative in this effort and did not want to be a part of it. And that the men actually forced to take it away from them. Now, later on, they change their mind, and they become part of it. But at this point, they don't want anything to do with it. But why is he getting gold? I mean, the people are going crazy. And how many people are you talking about? Well, you're talking about 600,000 men. Now, you add 
wives, kids, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and all, you may end up with two million people. <coughs> what happens if you have a riot of two million people? I mean, I think if I'm in a classroom with 18 kids and I have a riot, I've got a big problem, right? <laughs> Can you imagine two million people? And they're saying, we want an Elohim. We want a God to go before us. We don't know what's happened to Moses. What are you going to do? You're going to say, well, you know, talking on behalf of God, he can't talk on behalf of God. He's never talked on behalf of God. And he's not someone that they recognize to be in that kind of position. He is the spokesman of God for Moses, but he's kind of the guy that stands beside Moses. Moses is the top dog on the totem pole here. And if they wanted him to be you know, the leader, they would have gone to him, but they don't. Aaron realizes that there's a major problem here, and he doesn't know how to stop it. So he gets a little frantic and goes to what I'm going to call delay tactics. Get the gold, get the rings, get, you know, whatever. And he figures this is going to take some time. You know what I mean? After all, if you've got two million people, how long is it going to take? You know, a couple of days, and by that time, Moses will be back and everything will be fine. It seems that they were a little too anxious and got it together really quick. And he says, okay, now follow the text here. We're in Exodus 32, and see if this sounds right. All the people, verse 3, broke off the golden rings which were in their ears, brought them to Aaron. He received it at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a molten calf. Wait a minute. How do you make an idol? Aren't you supposed to smelt everything down into liquid, then you pour it into a mold, which is a sand mold, then you break the sand away from it, then you take that, that uh, graving tool, which is a little, it's kind of like a pin kind of thing like this, and it has a curved... Uh, uh, kind of piece on the end of it and you incise you know all the material in the eyebrows and all this while the metal's still cold and all that kind of stuff there's a stage that's skipped here it doesn't say anything about the idol being made does it it just says what does it say he received it at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool that's not how you make a golden calf that's what you do when you get a golden calf that's not what you do to receive a golden calf. But whatever happened, we'll come back to that in a minute. So now he's, he's engraving on it. And again, a delay tactic because you don't have to get up there and make it all nice and pretty. But it's like, you know, okay, just wait a minute. We make it look really nice. And so he's doing all this. And then he says, now, now let's build an altar. And he doesn't say we're going to sacrifice anything on it. He just says, let's build an altar and we're going to have that. So we have another delay uh, position going on here. Now he's hoping Moses is going to get off the mountain and get down here. Because what's happened? Well, when did they start counting this 40 days and 40 nights? Was it when Moses stepped on the mountain? Was it when they lost sight of him? Was it when, you know, uh, he went up on the mountain and, um, and Joshua went with him or, or what? What's going on? We don't know when they started counting. What we do know is their count's off. And it may be off about a day. And they're so frantic for a leader to lead them that they just go crazy and all this stuff starts. And Aaron says, well, I don't know what else to do. So he does all this stuff to delay things so that hopefully Moses is going to come down before this whole thing gets too stupid and too crazy. So, what's going on? Well, in verse 19, Moses comes down. He comes into the camp. He sees the calf. 
He sees the people are dancing and going crazy, and there is some insinuation of sexual involvement. He gets really angry, throws the tablets down, breaks them. Then he takes the calf, throws it back in the fire, grinds it up into powder, puts it in the camp's water supply, and makes them drink it. Isn't that interesting? Now, was that to give them severe indigestion so they'd really feel the pain of their sin? No, that's not what's going on here. Then he turns to Aaron and says, what did you do? And then Aaron comes up with that lame excuse. And remember, if that's an excuse and that's not true, then why is the next thing God do, does to Aaron is make him high priest? Unless that's exactly what happened. Now think about this. Remember, we started off talking about demonic powers. They were very well and alive in Egypt. And we know them and what they did. We found the spells and all this kind of stuff. We see it in action with the staff that's thrown down, with the duplication of the first three miracles that are done by the magicians and all those soothsayers that are in Egypt. What's going on? Well, they have some kind of religious power that was given to them by something. And Moses was showing them a religious empowerment that he had that superseded their religious powers. But here's the question. How do you throw a pile of gold into a fire and out comes a calf? And here's the answer. If you turn to evil for your source of power, you can turn to a rock or tree or anything else, you're probably going to get exactly what you asked for. And you may get in spades. Because what you're doing is you're turning to evil for power and not God. Now it's relinquished power and it's nothing that evil has in and of itself. You see, I think sometimes we don't realize the power that we have within us that's a part of our very nature as we are a, as be, just being human beings. I was talking to one of the Bible professors here the other day at church and we were talking about the Holy Spirit and said, you know, we can't say that too much because people think we're charismatic and we sure don't want to be charismatic. And the idea was, was, you know, we want to be, people think we're jumping pews or something like that. And it's like, that's not what charisma tone means. That's not what charismatic means. It means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Well, you're either filled with the Spirit of God or you're not. Paul says the pagans don't really understand what they're offering to. Whatever it is, they're sacrificing to demons or, in other words, they're demonic worshipers. 1 Corinthians 10.20. Mentioned that a moment ago. To the person that does worship this type of power, there is a source of spiritual power that's there. Do you remember in Acts 16, there is a woman that is a soothsayer that starts following Paul around, and he gets really tired of her saying, you know, these men are from the most high God, so on and so forth, and he eventually turns around and casts whatever it is, the demon, out of her, and then the two guys get really ticked off, and that's when they're thrown in jail and beaten and that type of thing. Have you ever thought... What if I do go to a palm reader? What if I do read my you know, horoscope? And it's true. It's not by the power of God that it is. That's why you've got to be really careful about that kind of stuff. Because that's exactly what's going on in the book of Acts. Do you remember when Satan is talking to Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness? And he says, the world has been delivered into my hand, and I can do with it with whatever I please. The Bible also says that Satan's a liar. But what if Jesus had said, you know what, you're right, and relinquished his power to evil? Then what happens? Then what he said is true. 
Evil has nothing true that has to be said unless we allow it to have the power that we have within us. And the moment we give it the power and we say, well, maybe that is the truth, then that does become truth, at least for us. But it doesn't lead us to God. It actually leads us away from God. The calf, this is no more a God than anything they allowed it to be. Moses' response, he takes the calf, throws it back to the fire where it came from, grinds it up, Throws in the camp's water supply. Now, why? All right, listen to this. This is so cool. Uh, this is the greatest thing ever. There's a thing today called collodial gold. Anybody ever heard of it? Collodial gold is when you take dust, um, gold dust, and put it in water or glass. And that's what it does. Connie and I were at Bell Mead Plantation in Nashville a few years ago. We walked in the front door and they told us, they said, turn around and look at that paint above the door. And we did and the sun was shining through. It was blood red. They said, do you know why? And I said, yeah, it's collodial gold. And the person looked at me like, how'd you know that? <laughs> and I said, that's dust, dust uh, gold and dust form that basically the articles of light are permeating off it and that's what happens. And they said, that's exactly right. What is, what's he doing? When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, that light, when it reflects <coughs> off gold, it makes the camp water supply look like blood. And remember this phrase? This is a means of redemption for the camp of Israel, is what he's doing. He's trying to turn the very thing that was going to damn them into something that's going to redeem them. He's taking evil and he's turning it into good, into righteousness. This is a point of redemption for them. Now, what about those 3,000 that are killed? Here's what we think is going on. They didn't drink the water. And you know who didn't drink the water. And so they're killed. Why? Against a house divided against itself can't stand. Isn't it interesting, by the way, on the day of Pentecost, how many people are saved? 3,000. Same number. What about verse 25? This is an interesting one. Moses saw the people were naked. Aaron made them naked. There's shame among their enemies. Well, that's good for King James, but it's not a very good translation of it. If you go to the Tanakh, it says, Moses saw the people that they were exposed. Moses had exposed them to disgrace among those who rise up against them. Uh, the word naked just means they were out of control. And they were. They were going nuts. Mm -hmm. they, just, they weren't turning to God. They were turning away from God. And this is not to say that Aaron got off scot-free. I'll go over that in just a second. I've got five minutes left, so I'm going to try and cover this. Uh, remember, the calf becomes an important symbol of redemption, <laughs> according to what I've just covered here. You can go to Psalms 106 and listen to this. This is from the Amplified Bible. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake to prove the righteousness of the divine character, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also so that it dried up, and he led them through the depths as through a pasture land. He saved them from the hand of him that hated him and redeemed them from the hand of the Egyptian enemy. Thus, they exchanged him who was their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They traded their honor for the image of a calf. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done such great things in Egypt. Once spiritual power is relinquished and you give it over to something else, you give that dominion in your life. And I think that is the biggest problem in the church today and the world today. 
is people don't understand this concept that all that evil possesses is whatever you're allowed to have. It's not going to overcome you because good always overcomes evil. Always. Else it doesn't have the power to do anything. Now, if you want to give the power to Satan, you want to give the power to evil, it'll take it. Evil will use it for its purposes and evil will do whatever it wants to with it. In conclusion, I'm skipping a lot of stuff here, but in conclusion, here's what we come up with. In the biblical text, what we're talking about here is spiritual warfare. We're talking about a very real instance where in the Bible, spiritual warfare was so prominent and evil was so prominent that the very thing they asked for did exactly what Aaron said. Because if he didn't, then God's an idiot for allowing him to live because he just led the entire nation of Israel into idolatrous rebellion against God. And Aaron says, I didn't do that. Now what should he have done? Well, you know, according to Deuteronomy 9.20, uh, the Lord was very angry with Aaron to destroy him, and I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. It would have been good if he had called on God and said, what do you think I ought to do? You think that might have worked? You think God would have answered him? But he didn't. So he went to his own devices, but he never worshipped the idol. And he never promulgated the worship of the idol. He, that's not what he was doing. He was trying to delay the people. Remember that the first step to dealing with a problem is you have to admit there is one. And in, in the body of Christ, we've got to be really careful that we understand the spiritual warfare is very real. It is going on. And the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. If we wield it properly, it's an offensive weapon and will slice and dice evil into little bitty chicken nuggets to where it doesn't have any power over us at all. But if we don't understand the Word of God and we don't understand the helmet of salvation and feet shod with the preparation of peace and the breastplate of righteousness and all these metaphors that are given, we're nothing but sitting ducks just waiting to be overcome by something that can and will overcome us. Jesus said that if a house that is swept properly is not occupied, then the demon that left will bring back seven more like itself and will run in. And that's exactly what happens. We have to occupy ourselves with God and with his word and with his spirit. And if we do, we have no problems. God will fight the battle for us, and we will always be triumphant in whatever comes our way. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is it.